Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. Uh, I, I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, who is not with us today. Um, she is actually a man in the shop at the pharmacy, so good for her and thank you. Uh, I am streaming from, well, actually I'm not streaming because our internet is not as fast as we'd like it to be. So we are recording today and we will put it up later after the edited video. I'm in Pasco, Washington today. And as you can see, I have this wonderful, lovely background. Don't you love that background that I have today in this hotel? Um, it's going to be 109 degrees in Pasco today. So it's going to be a hot one, a scorcher out there. So um, hydrate yourselves, uh, stay inside if you can, stay cool and use sunscreen. So today, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Peter Lehman on my show, and he is a DPC, direct primary care practice out of Paulsville, Washington, and called Vintage DPC. Is that correct, Dr. Lehman? That's it. All right. And out of Paulsville, he's going to tell us a little bit about his story, about how he got into DPC and what DPC is, but um, realize that Healthcare does not have to be expensive, and that's kind of what we're the theme of this of this radio show uh, podcast episode is: is that healthcare does not have to be expensive. It is very affordable. You just have to shop for it, and you have to know where to go. So, one of the goals of our podcast is to educate and empower consumers that they are in charge of their own health, not only their own health as in their own physical health, but also financially their own health. And if they shop around, they can find um, healthcare at a better price and a better service than um, many people um, can believe. So um, Dr. Lehman, welcome to our show. And Thanks I would so like to, Glad yeah. to be here. Yeah, thank you. I would like you to start with a little bit about your history, you know, where you grew up and where you went to medical school and, um, and, and so on. Sure. Sounds great. So I grew up in San Diego, California. My dad was a physician. Um, he went to med school 50s and practiced most of my life growing up. And so he was my role model for being a doctor. And I went into medicine with what I call sort of a super romantic notion of what it meant to be a doctor. Mm. Um, it didn't involve, it certainly didn't involve insurance claims. It was just this idea of doctor meeting patient, doctor hanging a shingle out. Young listeners might not even know what that means, but you know, your doctor would uh, go into private practice, see patients, meet them where they're at, get paid by the patient directly. And it was a it was a one-to-one, face-to-face, no third-person type of uh, practice. So um, I knew from about the time I was maybe 10 that I wanted to be a doctor. A uh, real vivid memory of talking with my dad, uh, sitting by a lake one day doing some fishing. He said, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. Wow. And it really wasn't even a decision as I look back on it. It was sort of like, I'm going to be a doctor, like that's what I'm going to do. Um, I never imagined doing anything else uh, and never never sort of deterred from that path. So grew up in San Diego, went to college in the Midwest, did typical sort of a bachelor's degree uh, to get into medical school. And I did my medical school at George Washington University in Washington, DC. I was pretty lucky there. Um, they were remarkably 
patient-centered. And I say remarkably because by that point, that was mid-80s, people were already pretty much being paid third party. There really were doctors with this romantic ideal that I had. Uh, but even within that system, I really liked it because it was uh, super centered on patients and the other aspects I didn't obviously have to worry about as a student. So I loved medical school. I loved residency. I did a residency in family practice. I did that in the military. Didn't really want to come out of medical school with a lot of debt. Um, and that was a great experience too. Um, uh, I enjoyed being part of a system that was sort of well-defined and you could plug yourself into. You know, you, you didn't have to worry too much about all of the administrative issues in medicine. So I practiced in the military as a family practice doctor for um, seven years. Um, by the end of the seven years, I was ready to move on. Uh, good experience, but I, I didn't like, at the end of the day, didn't like the system. Uh, it, there were parts of it that kind of got in the way of that relationship. So 1996, um, left the military and moved to Washington State to start private practice. Um, and that was an interesting chapter of my life. Uh, the private practice led to where I'm at today uh, because of the changes I saw over the 20 years or so that I was a, a private practice doctor. And that was sort of a typical practice that you might, um, might see a patient today. Um, all pretty much insurance-based reimbursement. I saw patients who had commercial insurance, Medicare, Medicaid. You know, the early years of the practice, I started with a group of about 30 doctors. It was a multi-specialty practice. And the practice grew uh, maybe like double the size in the 20 years that I was there. I would say when it started out, I really enjoyed being a doc. There wasn't that much um, bureaucratic stuff to deal with. And I got a decent amount of time with my patients. And I felt like I was still doing that um, kind of more pure practice of medicine. And I'd say in the last maybe 10 years, things really started to change. And uh, the relationship I had with my patients began to change as well. Um, I could give you some of the idea of some of those changes if you'd like. Yeah, please. Yeah, let's give it, give us the details. I, I, I know I was talking to you at our um, before the show and you, I, I was really interested in what you thought was kind of the nail in the coffin. So yeah, yeah. go ahead and tell us what, what some of those things were. So of course this is my experience, but you know, I've got a lot of professional relationships over time and I kind of hear the same thing over and over from other doctors. I think patients may not realize how frustrated their doctors are right now. Um, I think patients are really frustrated with the system, um, as our doctors. So I would say, you know, I was really optimistic in maybe 2008, Barack Obama was elected president and um, uh, country was a little bit of a shaky place economically. And so they passed a stimulus package. And one of the things in the stimulus package that I was pretty excited about was um, uh, funds that were allocated for physicians who were interested in converting from paper records to electronic medical records. And I've always enjoyed uh, computers and tech and I used electronic uh, medical records for many years, even before I needed to. So I was pretty excited. Um, and my organization was quite large, so we did need the, the financial support to convert over. And unfortunately, that led to sort of a series of events that is, has left medicine where it is today, which um, it has gotten into the, 
needing to see lots of patients in a given day. So I think most patients understand like going into the doctor and kind of feeling kind of rushed and getting through quickly. Right. And so the way this all sort of happened was a great idea. Let's take paper charts. Let's move them to an electronic version. People can read it. Uh, it's easy to keep track of records. You can keep track of things over time. But unfortunately, the first phase was, hey, we want you to use these records. We're going to give you some funds to do it. The second phase was, well, you can only use certain vendors to get certain medical records. So that kind of began to limit choice on physicians' right. part. And when you limit choice, you tend to lose uh, quality yep. because competition breeds a better product. So we were told what we could, which programs we could use. And then we were told, we need you to use it in a way that's meaningful full based on kind of criteria that the, the government set out. It wasn't enough to just have the program. You needed to use it in certain ways. Um, fair enough. Uh, but then the next phase was, okay, you're going to need to report to us uh, in a way that we can make sure you are using it in a meaningful way, or we're going to penalize you. And so that ended up uh, being for Medicare patients. If we weren't, quote, meaningfully using it, uh, we would suffer across the board 2% reduction in Medicare reimbursements. And maybe I'd say fair enough there as well. I'm, I mean, I'm being very uh, generous. But the reporting requirements continued to get more and more complicated to sort of prove that we were using this properly. And so insurance companies kind of piggybacked on that. Because they said, well, oh, if you're going to report to the government very complicated ways of presenting uh, the work you've done through the medical record, we're going to kind of require that sort of level of, of uh, reporting to us for your insurance claims. So what I saw in the last four or five years of my practice was I and other physicians spent a lot more time, you know, looking here at the computer, typing, having to do chores that didn't have nothing to do with patient care. And we had to hire quite a few staff to process claims, submit, submit this evidence, excuse me, submit this data to uh, the government. Well, Medicare and insurance companies tend to sort of cap out year by year how much they pay for the work that you do. And so we had flat amounts of revenue coming in and we had increasing costs on the way out. And as a business, if you're you know, going to tread water, that means you have to bring more business in. And unfortunately, that has led to doctors having long schedules with lots of patients and patients getting shorter and shorter and shorter time with their doctors. And I really felt that the last few years of my practice. And that really collided with my deep down vision of being a physician, because that romantic idea was a relationship that took time. And the one thing that's really been cut out of the doctor-patient relationship for the most part in most clinics is time. Time gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And it's not enjoyable for the patient, it's not enjoyable for the doctor, and it's not good medicine. Can you give us an example of some of the things that were um, driving the, what were some of the, the details that you had to put on this electronic medical record that, that you feel was probably just you know, extra work and not necessary? Yeah. So if you were a surgeon, let's say, in, uh, you know, let's say 2012, 2013, and you were in this system, it's pretty easy to just 
document that you performed a surgery and you would bill the insurance for a surgical code and a surgical code is pretty easy to interpret you did let's say an appendectomy it's sort of pretty straightforward right right well if you're a family practice doctor or your pediatrician you're an internist you're spending time talking with the patient gathering data formulating ideas in your head working with the patient to come up with a diagnosis and a plan well how do you quantify that well the way that uh, the system evolved was we call them bullet points so instead of uh writing up a paragraph detailing, let's say you and I saw each other and you were having headaches, instead of detailing what we talked about, in order to quantify it, every little aspect of what we talked about needed to be uh, checked off as a box. So the checkbox might be headache, check, left side, check, three months, check, worsening, check, etc. So checkboxes and clicking the mouse became sort of the 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 way you spent your day and if you had a complicated patient you could kind of imagine the number of clicks you end up getting with your mouse in the well, course of the day yeah and so this is why some patients complain about when they go to a traditional doctor that's billing insurance, this is why they complain that the doctor was looking at the computer the whole time when they were seeing the patient is that is that correct? Right. So generally, uh, the doctor staring at his computer, which I hear, I mean, regularly, yeah. not from me, but right. partners of mine and patients who see specialists, literally, I hear they didn't make much eye contact. They spent their time in the computer. I can guarantee you they would prefer not to be doing that. But they are in that process of clicking, clicking, clicking for the purposes of documenting for billing. All of that documentation is not so that they have a nice smooth record that they can get to quickly and could show to another physician to easily understand what was done. It's having to accomplish a lot of busy work, um, which is distracting. I mean, patients rightly so are appropriate to say, why is my doctor looking at the computer? And the doctor's kind of pinned into a system where they're sort of stuck. Like that's kind of what they have to do. Um, the alternative, which I ended up doing, and other physicians I know did was, I'd typically stay at the office till 10 o'clock at night. And when I finished seeing my, seeing my patients, that's when I did all the clicking. I kept notes on paper and then spent two or three hours clicking at night while my wife asked when I was gonna be home for dinner or my, you know, my kids wanted to know when I'd be home. So that kind of became the reality, probably, you know, from let me 2012, 2013 on. And so for me personally, probably I'm gonna say, late 2014, I just started realizing I couldn't keep doing it. I couldn't keep doing it because physically, mentally, emotionally, I couldn't do that for another 20 years. It was, you know, really, really tiring and stressful. And I couldn't do it because it wasn't, it wasn't being all the doctor I could be. You know, when I was, when I was in the army, it's be all you can be. And it really mm -hmm. sort of was true for private practice. I just couldn't be uh, the doctor I thought patients needed and the, and what I wanted as far as like a satisfying career. But I didn't know what to do. Uh, I saw no alternatives. Um, they're just, you know, where was I going to work? I was either going to be employed by a hospital somewhere. Um, if I wanted to be in private practice, let's say maybe in a small practice, I still had to go through the clicks and the billing and those sorts right. of things. 
And just by uh, coincidence, serendipity, I heard a five-minute short little blurb on a medical channel about direct primary care. Um, I was actually uh, sitting in my truck, a pretty vivid memory. One of my older daughters played uh, competitive high school soccer and uh, we had to get there early. And so I'd usually sit in the truck and drink my coffee while she got ready for the game. And so I listened to this blurb and the idea was, hey, why don't you take care of your patients directly and do it for a monthly fee rather than needing to be based on seeing a large number of visits to you know make your living why don't you set your practice up like a gym membership or something where patients can pay one fee for the month they're done and you see them for anything they need during the month and you can do it any way that makes sense for the patient you know whether it's a video call like this or handling it over the phone. There's no need to bring the patient in in order to you know, submit a claim to get reimbursed. Right. And it was, to me, it was sort of like the light went off in my head and I said, this is my salvation. This is what's gonna allow me to, to practice medicine again. And it really opened up, you know, it opened up so many opportunities because I didn't need to have uh, a panel of patients or two or 3,000, which I had two or 3,000 patients in private practice uh, that I had to take care of. And the reason why I had two or 3,000 patients was, you know, only a small percentage of those patients went to the doctor in any given day. But the only way you got paid was to see patients in the office. Yep. You know, so I was able to cut my practice down to just shy of 600 patients. And with 600 patients, I could offer, which I do to this day, um, 60 minute appointments routinely, if they wanted to be in the office. If it's something really simple, we could do 30 minutes. Um, I could offer video visits. I could offer telephone visits. We could take care of problems through texting or email. Uh, I make house calls. It, it doesn't matter to me whether I'm seeing a patient in the office or at their home. I'm not, you know, sabotaging my finances as a, you know, as a physician to go out of the office. So whether it's a nursing home visit, house call, um, and the model became really different because instead of uh, a volume-based model, it became what I would call like value-based. So my idea was, well, how many things can I possibly put into this membership uh, to save people money and to make the relationship that we had deeper because uh, more of their care was being provided by me? So that was sort of the, uh, this epiphany when I was in my truck having my coffee in 2014, where I said, this makes sense. It's good for the doctor. It's good for the patient. It's good for um, anybody who, let's say radiology office or a specialty office that also would be willing to see my patients for cash. I could provide a ton of value to patients. I didn't really see any downside to it. Um, so what, what, did you, what did you see as a barrier or weren't you skeptical? Because I know, you know, in our pharmacy, we haven't built insurance since 2002. And, you know, there were many, many naysayers saying that we can't do that. You have to have insurance for volume and you're not going to be in business over a year. We haven't, we haven't had employees saying that. Um, of course, those employees didn't work for us uh, much longer, but um, right. what was, 
what was the biggest barrier and weren't you skeptical a little bit? Cause I'm sure you had some colleagues that were telling you that's impossible, correct? Oh yeah. Um, I, I, I had a number of things. Col colleagues, colleagues said, Oh, you're going to go into boutique medicine right. or you're going to yep. go into, you're going to have a concierge practice. And those sound very highfalutin and, you know, sort of expensive. They sound expensive, right? They, they do sound expensive. And actually there are, uh, there are doctors who have, let's call them concierge practices, um, which essentially is pay a retainer, like for the year, usually pretty high. Same idea of, I won't have to take care of as many patients if I'm a concierge doctor. But concierge doctors are still tied into the medical system of billing. So uh, patients pay a yearly fee to their concierge doctor that lets the doctor have fewer patients so they've got more time, but they're still billing the insurance company for all the visits and it's just a premium the patients are paying on top of that, essentially to get time and more personal attention, which is fine, um, but they're very high end. Direct primary care is a very specific thing. It's actually in, this, in the state of Washington where I live, it's a defined thing. It's a, um, a monthly membership practice that's recurring that can end at any time um, if it no longer meets the patient's needs. And it's completely divorced from the third-party reimbursement. So part of it was like having people understand what I was doing, you know, that this was something much more simple. Um, and I might have said, okay, if you want to call it concierge, this is concierge for the common man. So kind of getting physicians and patients to understand what I was doing, I mean, to me, it seemed pretty straightforward think about the 1950s, you went and saw your doctor, you paid him. Just imagine that, but now it's a monthly fee like a gym membership, so you can go work out as often as you want or, or not. Right, but it's right. been hard even after five years to sort of get people to wrap their head around that because they're so used to using insurance. So that, honestly, that was probably the biggest hurdle. When I heard about the concept of direct primary care, I said, this can't fail. Like this is just, it makes too much sense. Um, and once I realized that it really could be done for a very low fee, it was just a matter of me having to learn a lot, quite honestly. I was a doctor in the military. I didn't have to worry about anything other than seeing patients. When I was in private practice, I was part of a large group. So we had, you know, an administrative uh, part of the group that took care of all of the details of business. And probably like I'm sure you experienced when you, you know, started a pharmacy, nobody really teaches you how to build a business no. <laughs> or run a business day to day and, you know, get all of your ducks in a row. So I had quite a bit to learn just about setting up a company, right, and, and running a practice. Right. Uh, but it was fun. You know, it was sort of like a second, a second uh, set of skills for me to learn. And I, I really, I really didn't think it could fail. And I've been... My practice has been up and going for four and a half years, and it's been a huge success, and patients love it. I love it. Um, so. I, I honestly, you know, we've, um, we work with a lot of um, direct primary care um, practices, and um, we, look, we work with a lot of traditional practices, too. And I can tell you, most people in traditional practice, um, they, they don't like it at all. I mean, I don't think I've ever talked to a doctor that really likes EMR. I don't think I've ever talked to a doctor that really likes insurance companies. Um, right. You know, and 
I can honestly tell you if in of the DPC practices we've talked to and we work with all of them love it and their patients love it too. Um, And I honestly think that it's a big future of medicine. I think it's here to stay for sure. And it's growing really fast. And I think it's, you know, one of our goals is to get the word out there about practices like yourself, because um, it's so affordable. It's that we hear about how expensive healthcare is and, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive to go to the doctor. So speaking of affordable, um, tell us a little bit about your fees, how affordable they are. Sure. And I, I'll, I'll tell you those, I want to just tag on because it, um, this idea of like medicine being expensive um, and mentioning insurance, one of the things that I had to sort of uh, teach patients about in order for them to understand why it might be affordable is I personally started thinking and I talked to my patients about insurance and I'm using air quotes because medical insurance doesn't look at all like any other insurance people buy. And so I started uh, thinking about this idea of um, auto insurance because everybody has auto insurance and they could relate as we would talk about it. And so auto insurance, you pay a premium that's pretty reasonable for most people and you use it for unexpected um, expensive repairs and you know things that come up and in your daily life as you are uh, filling your gas tank or you're replacing a tire or you're getting new wiper blades or whatever it happens to be or you're just getting some routine tune-ups you don't think about using your insurance it doesn't enter your mind you have simple interactions whether you go to buy wiper blades or you take your car to your mechanic and it seems obvious it's just you take care of routine things using uh, cash and the things that aren't really likely to happen, you pay a premium to cover, but it doesn't cost a lot because those things don't happen all that often. Right. And, you know, if you want to buy top of the line wiper blades, Bosch or whatnot, you just decide if it's worth it to you to spend the money or if you'd rather, you know, spend less, you know, for another product. In health insurance, you pay a premium to a third party to pay the mechanic, let's say, the the healthcare mechanic. And you pay a third party if you want to get, oh, I don't know, glasses, or you need to get a tune-up, or let's say you needed to have a little, uh, uh, let's say a mole removed. Let's say that's the equivalent of like getting a wiper blade. Well, the insurance says what you can and can't have, where you can go, which doctors you can see. And you might, you know, in the auto world, you might want to go to Napa instead of some other place. And you can't do that insurance. It's like, no, you need to go here. And by the way, you can't have the Bosch wiper blades. Uh, you know, I don't care if you want them, you can't have them. You might be willing to pay for it, but you can't because this is what's in the contract. Um, and one of my favorites, most people have probably had the experience of uh, like a prior authorization. And that's where your doctor orders a medication or they order a test and the insurance company says, well, you're going to have to get in touch with us to get permission essentially to get that. And uh, the equivalent would be you, Sean, saying, you know, um, I want to go fill up at Chevron and I'm going to fill my tank, even though um, 
normally I just use small amounts of gas because I'm going out of town on a vacation. And you'd of course be submitting a complaint, a, a, a claim to, to a Chevron for the gas and Chevron would say, well, we're gonna have to get approval from Allstate, your auto insurer, before we can fill your tank up to go on this special trip. Because you know, most people don't take special trips. <laughs> Literally, that's that's the way health insurance works now. It is. It is. And right? oh, I just I love the analogy. I just love it. And thank you for explaining that. Now, I'm going to add just a little bit to that. Okay. And it was probably 15 or 20 years ago when I first heard the auto insurance versus health insurance analogy. Um, and it was actually from a, a um an insurance commissioner in Washington state that was um, a libertarian and he was running for insurance commissioner about 20 years ago. And uh -huh. he made the analogy of auto versus uh, health insurance. And I think this is what the big difference is, is imagine if employers or the government paid for our auto insurance, right. what would happen is we would be going to, you know, imagine, let's say we go, my, my tires go a bit, go bad in my car. I need new tires. I go in there, I go in there to Les Schwab. I get tires and they're going, well, it's going to be a thousand dollars to get new tires. And I'm like, you know what? My employer's auto insurance should cover this. So I lobby to get my tires covered. Next thing I know is that my, I'm, my brakes go bad in my car. It's a couple hundred dollars or whatever. I want to get that covered on my employer's auto insurance. And next thing you know, I'm filling up my gas. I'm like, you know what? This is not right. I'm paying for my own gas. My employer's auto insurance should pay for this. And that's exactly where we've come with healthcare. I mean, you know, it, it's, and, and when, pe when people aren't paying for the common stuff, and here's what happens, the common everyday stuff, just like you're talking about, and here's what happens. So then physicians or healthcare entities that are playing that insurance company game, they do when you go, when they go into the office, when a patient goes into the office, the doctor charges way more than it should be to capture all the charges. Um, even though nobody really pays that much, unless you're a cash patient, then you really get screwed because you do pay that much. Um, and then they do everything they can to add extra services on there that are going to cost a lot so they can get reimbursed more. Is that, is that not what's happened? Right, exactly. And if you think about it, um, in everybody that I know who has insurance for health insurance for themselves, myself included, I, the last five to 10 years, premiums have gone way, way, way up. I mean, health insurance is really expensive. And most patients, including myself, our deductibles have gone higher and higher and higher, the amount we have to pay before the insurance kicks in. Um, so if, if you have an insurance product that's designed to cover things that might or might not happen, that could be a big deal, and you switch it to being something where you're gonna pay ahead of time for the service, which is really what you're doing, you're paying the insurance company so that they can pay the doctor through the complicated system for the visit, it has to be more expensive. Like it, yep. There's no way that it can't. Um, you're, you're up front saying, we're going to cover things that happen all the time that people are going to take advantage of, they're going to use. So it, it, it just seems so obvious to me as I was looking into direct primary care that like, of, of course, that's why insurance is expensive. And of 
course, that's why medical care seems expensive. Um, well, it actually is. The price that you pay for medical care is high. The cost to provide it can be very low. So to swing back around to what it costs to be in a direct primary care yeah. practice. So I charge a monthly fee by age because I wouldn't want to charge a fee based on how sick somebody was that would sort of be unethical. So for uh, children between the ages of zero and 20, and I must say 20 is not really a child, but that's where we started. Zero to 20 is $15 a month. And people between the ages $15 of 20 a month. So my 18 year old son yes. could pay you $15 a month and have 24 seven access to you as a doctor. Correct. And Unreal. that goes, so that, and again, go back to the idea of because, because you've paid me for the month, I don't need you to come into the office. So let's say you're 18, let's say you're in school. And I, I actually have quite a few um, younger people, maybe they're in college. We could do a video visit like this. We could Zoom or whatnot right. from the dorm room to me for a problem they have. They know me. I have the relationship with them. They don't have to go to you know, the, the health service on campus. Uh, honestly, that, that's a bargain. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue against it. Yeah, so, and, and just the convenience for them. And especially, you know, I've got, a, right. I've got two sons that are 20 and 18. And just the convenience that, you know, you, you could do a FaceTime or any kind of video conference or whatever. You can text them. You, you can send a prescription where they need it sent to. It's, 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 it's amazing. It's incredible. Right. And I've had personal experience with it with my nephew when we've been traveling on a hiking trip and he had a my brother had a dpc physician he was working with and the pharmacy that i went to we went to he needed insulin the pharmacy we went to it was on a saturday or sunday late and you know the pharmacy's like well you're gonna have to go to the er or something to get a prescription or something i'm like you know the, i didn't tell him i was a pharmacist or anything but i'm like no, just watch this happen. <laughs> and anyway, next thing you know, prescription shows up for, for insulin. And, you know, my nephew was taken care of all in a, I mean, it saved thousands of dollars to, you know, to not go to the ER. So I interrupted your fee schedule. So, but it's just, it's so exciting. That is so exciting. So affordable. So keep going on because it gets, yeah. it, it, it changes with age, correct? Right. So uh, 21 to 40-year-olds are $45 a month. Uh, 41 to 65-year-olds are $65 a month. 65 to 99 is $85 a month. And 100 and older is a dollar a month. A dollar a month. I love it. Right. <laughs> and do you have any 100-year-old patients I that do. pay it? <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> right now I have... Two, my oldest patient's 104. She doesn't come to the office any longer, but I go and see her. She has an apartment and assisted living. Uh -huh. um, COVID, which uh, is a whole nother issue, um, <laughs> right. it's made it hard to do yeah. house calls. But no, I figure if, you know, if somebody lives to be 100, they deserve you know, some sort of present. And so I love taking care of older people. Um, you know, all of us are a... Um, a conglomeration of life stories, right? Our, our whole lives are little, little uh, chapters. And so I love older patients because they've got uh, lots of interest, interesting stories and I've got a lot to learn from them. So yeah, so it's 15, 45, 65, 85 uh, and a dollar. And 
that is all inclusive. So any professional service I can provide is included in that. So that would be, you know, me taking care of patients for their acute needs. Let's say it's a strep throat or, you know, bronchitis, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Stitches. Um, I, um, a couple of years ago, came in on a Sunday uh, to put stitches in a six-year-old who uh, was out with his dad and somehow got a hold of a hatchet and cut his leg pretty badly. And um, so I came in and saw him on a, it was just either a Saturday or Sunday. And it was really helpful because uh, the kid knew me. I'd taken care of him from day one. And so there was a reduced apprehension from going to urgent care or whatnot. Right, for sure. And we took our time. There was no hurry to get it done. And no charge. I mean, it's included. It's a service right. I can provide. There's no charge for the stitches. It's just... It's that's part of the included. monthly fee. Part of the monthly fee. And, you know, that visit probably would have been, you know, one or $2,000 easily in an urgent care or an ER. Um, and so... And, and it would have been a 12-hour day. It would have I mean, been at least an eight, at least at least eight hour. It would it would have taken up their entire day. I imagine with you, yeah. even though you took some time, I yeah. imagine it was he was in and out within out within an hour. Yeah, it was probably sixty to ninety minutes. And yeah, and if it had been an adult, I mean, like who knows, twenty minutes. Yeah, right. And, and it, you could have it could have been a little bit faster actually, but um, right. you know, you take time with patients. <laughs> You know, and so we really work very hard to help patients avoid urgent care and ER visits. And obviously, there are some visits you you need to be in the emergency room, but a lot of urgent care visits are done just because they're after hours or um, a patient's regular doctor schedule is too full. Right. Um, and so there are expenses that people incur that are not really necessary. That is um, awesome. That is awesome. So, so when... Yeah, go ahead. So basically when you, you know, you compared auto insurance to um, health insurance and, you know, you talked a little bit about, about competition, um, you know, with the, the health oh, insurances yeah. of kind of limited competition because they kind of tell people where to go, right? So right. big hospitals or big medical groups that are part of the system, they, they love that system, right? Because they essentially are in that monopoly. So they love that system, correct? Yeah, what I've seen just over the course of my practice is that um, small practices used to be the norm. Now, large uh, hospital-based practices are the norm. So you'll, you know, in, in my area, there are systems in Seattle, Tacoma, Washington, uh, the county where I live, which is just across Puget Sound. And large hospitals like the idea of providing all the aspects of care. So they might purchase uh, family practice offices, they'll purchase orthopedic physicians offices, urologists, et cetera. And they like being able to provide the, well, we'll say the continuity of care, but what it allows them also is that they don't have competition. They don't have to, continually improve on their customer service. They, they don't have anybody to, you know, they don't have to answer the consumer, that's for sure. And that's not good. I mean, I think people by nature are, are um, well-meaning, have a good heart, et cetera. So 
you know, we don't want to say that, you know, uh, corporate medicine is just all, you know, evil curmudgeons, but there is no incentive to provide fantastic patient um, service, you know, from door to door. Whereas if you're in a private practice and your goal is to provide as much value to a patient as possible for a monthly fee, you have every incentive to, to, you know, treat the patient as you would if they were a, a, you know, a customer in your restaurant or whatnot. Right. And you sort of know that as more and more, let's say doctors in this market begin to go towards this and leave the system, you're all competing to be the best you can be. And that does two things. Prices go down and quality goes up. It's like anything else. Absolutely. And I've, I've been amazed, even though um, there aren't that many private practices for specialists around anymore in my area, the ones that are around will take a cash payment from a patient. They, they very much take it and they'll discount their prices 70%, 75% from what they would charge the patient with an insurance policy because there's no overhead for them. They can just take the payment. And it kind of makes sense. It's makes sort of the way sense. the rest yeah, of the we, world works. Yeah. And, you know, I, I tell you what, Dr. Lehman, you are preaching to the choir. I, I, I love what you say, and it makes me sound like I'm not so crazy anymore because I actually right. wrote a book about this, and the book is called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And, and really, the, the fix is not getting the government more involved. They're already too involved. They're the ones that ruined it. The, the fix is a free market um, – a system and let patients choose and let them pay cash, let them decide where to go, let them decide what services they want and what they want to pay for. And service will go up and um, price will go down. It's, it, it happens in every industry and healthcare, um, you know, is, is definitely no different. Um, I've got an example of my son when he broke his wrist uh, when he was 14 years old, we found a hand specialist um, Local, the local surgeons would not give us any kind of cash discount. We found a hand specialist that, um, you know, his discounted rate for seeing a patient was 50%. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, their x-rays were, were inexpensive. The x-rays were like $59 for six position x-ray. Right. And the surgery ended up being um, a 70% discount. We ended up saving thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars just by shopping around. Now, one of the things that was different is we didn't have typical health insurance. We have a health sharing ministry. At the time, we had Samaritan Ministries. So mm -hmm. we were able to pick what doctor, what hospital, where we wanted to have the surgery. We didn't let some insurance company pick it for us. And I think that's part of the problem is that people listen too much to their insurance companies because they think this – they think this thing is, well, I got to use my insurance. And then, you know, many times using your insurance is more expensive than paying cash. Do you have any examples of that? Oh, gosh, lots. Um, I'll give a real, real simple example. Um, because simple examples are, are nice. They're not difficult to understand. And it'll tie in a little bit on this idea of competition. Um, and value. So uh, we offer in our clinic, what we call client priced lab testing. So we went to one of the major national lab testing uh, companies and said, look, if, if our patients uh, get labs from you, 
and you don't have to process insurance. You could bill me once each month for all the labs that my patients get done. What sort of discount would you give so that I can write you one check cash for the whole thing at the end of the month? Right. And the, the discount would, well, this will be the example. So uh, a patient who needed a PSA, a blood test to screen for prostate cancer, and he wanted one sooner than insurance would allow, because insurance would allow like one per 365 days. You were, you know, and the patient was concerned. There was some family history. And so he went to get the test done. And the bill through the insurance was, I, I'm going to say somewhere on $800. You know, it was quite high. Yeah. And the same test, the same test we do for cash is $6 and 20 cents. Uh, uh, another example that I could so say. What, but what was his right? co? So his copay ended up being, I don't know, do you pay a 20% copay or do you remember? I don't remember, but I can say that there's a couple issues. One, there's probably a copayment, which yep. most copayments, copayments are like 20 to $50, something like that. Plus the, the lab gets billed to the insurance at the negotiated insurance price, right? If that's under the deductible the patient has, which is usually pretty high, the insurance price is what gets passed on yeah. to the patient. And so luckily we were able to do that test for the patient, save him a lot of money. It's, it's actually amazing what, uh, let's say what a lab company would take. I used to order cholesterol panels to, you know, regularly in my private practice. And I can tell you most insurance companies bill out somewhere between like 90 and $100, something like that. That's a three dollar and twenty cent test it, to pay cash for it. It's un right, <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, so <laughs> it, it's it, when I first started, it's literally mind boggling. It, it, you it just is. Can't believe it. I mean, I've said it before, and I'm just going to say it now. Um, in general, the traditional healthcare insurance is a ripoff. It's a ripoff. It's a scam. And I am so glad we don't have it as a family anymore. And I hope I never have to go back. And yeah, it, 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 and then medications is another one. Of course, you know, our pharmacy doesn't bill insurance. So we know quite a bit about the cash pricing and um, mm -hmm. we don't do a lot of traditional medications, but it's surprising to me when um, I'll hear what some pharmacy, you know, some big chain pharmacy charges for a generic medication that should literally be, you know, $12 for a three month supply and they're charging, you know, $60 for a month supply. And, right. you know, you try to talk to the patient about it and say, well, tell them you don't have insurance. And then the first thing the pharmacist does is mm -hmm. like, they, they don't know how to charge. They, they don't know right. how to charge on, you know, for a cash medication. They'll just say, well, we, we usually bill your insurance. And they tell us what to charge. It's like, no, what if I don't have insurance? And it's just like, right. it's a deer in the headlight look. I mean, right. and you know, we don't when know. I first got out of pharmacy school. To, yeah. We don't know how to take your cash. Right, right, right. When I first got out of pharmacy school, twenty-seven years ago, twenty-six years ago, um, it wasn't that way because Medicare did not pay for medications yet. There was no Medicare Part D. You remember those times, right? So there was still a large group of people that were cash only. So pharmacies had to be very competitive, and right. now they don't. Because ninety nine percent of it is 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 uh is insurance based, so the drug companies are in bed with the insurance companies, and um they can 
the drug companies can raise their price, the pharmacies can raise their price. They don't have to be they don't have to be competitive to a to a cash paying consumer. And as you said before, they don't have to give good service. I mean, because the insurance company is the customer, not the not the patient, because they're the ones paying the bill. So that's why a lot of times in traditional healthcare, we don't get good service because the customer's not directly paying the bill. Right. I I'm so glad you said that, Sean, because um, of course they when there was cash payment for medication, you had to compete for the price, but you also had to compete to provide service like that people would uh, rave about, right? Right, yes, yes. So I don't, I, you know, as a, as a physician, but also as a patient, you know, we've just let this system develop where in any other aspect of our life, we wouldn't tolerate it. Not, not even maybe. Or we would, you know, we would, we would raise holy hell that, you know, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, I mean, you choose to go to one store or another for a variety of reasons. You might spend more money at one store because they, you know, they know you by name and they, um, you know, provide amenities or whatnot. You might go to another store because it's cheaper to think that you wouldn't have choice to do lots of different things, you just wouldn't accept that anywhere else. And, you know, peop people complain about, let's say, well, there's only two cable providers in my area. And so there's not much difference between the two. There's no real difference in terms of uh, savings. People don't seem to, I think that, well, they're not empowered, let's say that. They're not empowered to say, you know, we want something better. We, in a way, it's just we want to go back to sort of the old days, as it were. Yeah, right, but, right. Uh, yeah, we, we need to, and I'm so glad you, you were on today because this is part of what our goal of our radio show is, is to educate and empower consumers. They are in charge. Um, not their insurance company. They shouldn't let their insurance company be in charge. They shouldn't let an employer dictate their health care. They should be in charge of their health care. And there, there are options out there like, like direct primary care that are very affordable. I mean, when you think about your fees, it's less than a cell phone bill. It's less than a, than a, than a, um, a cable or a TV bill a month. It's less than, um, it's less than most gym memberships. Uh, or a really we, nice dinner out, you know, once a month. Once a month, right. And right. I mean, right. I mean, it's very, very affordable. Very, very affordable. So um, let's move on a little bit because I know you have some pretty strong opinions about, about um, of COVID. And, you know, our, our, our state has been locked down, one of the worst in the, in the nation, actually. Right. And... Um, you know, can you tell us what, what are, you know, what are you seeing with, with death, the death rates as far as the age and versus influenza and things like that? Just, just um, go into that quickly. Well, um, this is an interesting thing because we all have like our own experiences where what I notice and what I'd say sort of bothers me is that, and this is almost sort of the same idea about, as we're talking about insurance, we're taking like this monolithic approach like that the United States is one thing or that Washington state is one thing. And so we're going to apply decisions from the top down when there's a very, very big difference between the County I live in where, you know, I think we've had 
maybe three or 400 positive tests. And of course, those aren't all cases, you know, if you think about a person, because people get multiple tests sometimes. But so there have been, you know, three or 400 positive tests in my county. What have we been in lockdown? Three or four months? Something like that? Yeah, four months. Um, and uh, we've had four unfortunate deaths but the population in my county is maybe 200,000, 150,000. And so it's a very, might we call it like a dry county. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a very different experience from let's say New York City. So it's, it's frustrating to me to, um, to not have, oh, what would be the right word? I don't know, like a, a more, local, more local control to be able to uh, meet the needs of the local population. I will say, Direct primary care has been great for at least my patients for a variety of reasons. Uh, traditional care really got um, broadsided by this because traditional care is office-based. You know, if you've got a if you've got a really compassionate doc, he'll give you a call, you know, to talk about a problem, but he's not being reimbursed for it. So most people, you know, require coming to the office for your care. Well, what do you do when? you really can't go to the office. And so traditional practices did uh, adjust in doing things like Zoom meetings and the like, but they weren't really prepared for it. And they're used to high volume. And uh, that's sort of more of a problem when you're doing video like this. We knew all of our patients, all of my patients for the most part have been with me the, from before my current practice or who joined me have been with me for four to five years because we weren't office-based per se, I could answer all of my patients' questions. I could get on and do a video visit. Yep. We could sort of do the equivalent of like a public service announcement for our patients to keep them uh, informed of what was going on. Uh, this is really not, we've just taken this in stride and our patients have taken it in stride. And I think there's a lot more confusion, um, difficulty with communication in the more traditional practices. Um, yeah, COVID's a tricky thing because, uh, you know, we're beginning to know more about it and we're beginning to see that there's a, a pretty well-defined population that are really at risk, elderly, um, for sure, nursing home patients who are confined, and then kind of middle-aged to older patients who aren't really very healthy. Right. And um, so it's a struggle to see us make our way through this. Um, I'm glad that I'm in direct primary care. Uh, personally, for my well-being, it's been good. And like, I feel like my patients have been, been very well prepared for this because they're, like, quite honestly, they've been more empowered throughout the whole time they're in the practice to be more proactive about their health. Right. So right. really challenging times. But um, I will say, too, probably that monthly fee being affordable has really been helpful to patients in this time. You know, because a lot of people have lost their jobs or they're furloughed yeah. or, you know, maybe they've had some other event. And this patient stick with no matter who their employer is, right? It's not tied to anything. So a patient could move jobs, they could be unemployed, they could be stay at home. And they don't lose this as long as they like the service that we provide. I love it. I love it. Yeah. All right. Well, that about wraps up our, our hour. Are there any um, parting words, Dr. Lehman, that you would like to say? And, and how, do, uh, how do people find you? Sure. 
Oh gosh, the parting words, I guess I would say um, to patience. I know it's hard to kind of stand up for yourself uh, because the system is big and it seems like you're just a small cog in a big machine, but there are docs out here who want the best for you and want your care to be as affordable as possible. Look for these doctors. Um, it doesn't have to be direct primary care. There are doctors who have cash pay practices. And even if you don't do that, like demand better of the system that you're in. Um, to the doctors out there, don't be afraid to think about getting outside the system. It can be a little scary, but there's a whole community of doctors that are very willing to help you strike out on your own and you know make the make a practice that you that fits your practice style. In terms of getting in touch with me or learning more about DPC, probably going to my website is a good place to go. I will say my practice has been full for about four years. I mean, I opened four and a half years ago. So I don't need the business, but I love having patients learn about direct primary care Absolutely. and I love educating docs. Um, the website is www.vintage, because we have a vintage old fashioned practice, vintagedpc.com. So vintagedpc.com. Um, and if anybody is interested in direct primary care around the country, if they'll just go into their you know, favorite web search and, and engine and type in DPC and the word mapper, M-A-P-P-E-R, you can find a website that'll show you around the country if there's direct primary care practices near you. Great resource. Um, direct primary care is pretty much throughout the 50 states and growing. Yep. And I'd, I'd encourage people you know, even if they don't direct, direct primary care, to look for options and to, you know, sort of reassert being the center of the healthcare system. I love it. Educating and empowering, and empowering consumers. I love Absolutely. it. Well, thank you for being on today, Dr. Lehman. And that wraps up our show. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. And we tune in Monday at 1 to 2 p.m. We will be streaming live as we always do every Monday. And you can catch us on live, usually live on Facebook and live on YouTube and all the podcast forms, SoundCloud, um, iTunes, and Google Playlist. So uh, we'll, be, we'll talk to you later.